Welcome, everybody, to Grace. It's good to see you guys uh, this weekend. Welcome, everybody, watching online, too. Thanks for being with us. And excited to dive kind of more deeply into this series right now uh, that we're calling It's What We Do. We're, we're looking at what is it that we do if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, we talked a little bit last weekend. If you have stepped through this torn curtain that Jesus created for us this invitation for salvation that he purchased for us through his death and resurrection. Uh, Some metaphors the Bible uses says we need to pass from death, spiritual death to life, from spiritual darkness to light. That idea, if I've received the forgiveness of my sin and placed my life under God's authority and direction, then I transition from death to life, from darkness to light. And uh, that's why Jesus died and what he provided for us. And the Bible says, when I do that, I become a different person. I think a different way. I love a different way. I'm motivated a different way. I act a different way. And what is that? What is it that we do? And how do we mimic Christ in those ways? So uh, this series, if you're a follower of Jesus, I think it's going to help a ton, uh, especially if you participate in the challenge and you're, uh, you're taking in God's word every day, you're praying on a regular basis, maybe picking up uh, some of the habits that of fasting and prayer that come along with this Bible memorization. Uh, the Bible says we hide God's word in our hearts so that we might not sin against God. That's part of why we memorize the, the Bible. And as a Christ follower, all these things are going to be helpful for you. And then we're going to do the go and do weekend. And I think you're going to get a ton out of it. It's going to help you grow and kind of accelerate in your relationship with Christ, right? So that, that's what will happen for you. If you're not a Christ follower yet, then what this series will do mostly is explain to you why Christians are so weird. Because <laughs> we're weird. Like we do a bunch of weird stuff and we care about a bunch of weird things and we're always concerned about your soul and we pray for you and all this weird stuff. And so it'll help some of that make sense of what motivates us to do that. And maybe too, paint a picture for you, if you decide to follow Jesus, what you'd be signing up for, uh, what God would look at and say, this is what I want my followers to do, what I want them to be about, and, uh, and how I want them to live, and how I want them to interact with the world around them, okay? So we're kind of going to kind of lay that out and then act on it through the Go and Do Challenge, and uh, that, that's where we're going to spend the next few weeks. I want to I show you some of this, because Jesus teaches that, that when I move from death to life, from darkness to light, that I am to start to see the world the way that he sees the world. And so I want to show you how God sees the world, how he sees the people around him, how he sees humanity, how he interacts with humanity, and then how he would want his followers to do that as well. So I want to show you kind of this biblical thinking, get inside God's heart and God's mind a little bit and see if we can wrap our heads around it. So if you got your Bibles, open them up to the book of 2 Corinthians. And we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the chairs. It's page 804 in those Bibles. And if you don't have a physical copy of the Bible and you want one, just keep that. Write your name in it and, and let it be yours. But we're going to kind of look at these things. Now, what I want to do this weekend, I'm going to move us through this on kind of a high level. What I really encourage you guys to do is read this throughout the week. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 5, and 6 is <clears throat> a powerful set of chapters in the Bible, kind of core uh, to who we are as Christ followers in a lot of ways. So it's going to be very, very valuable for you. But for the weekend, just for the time, I want to kind of mine out of it this thought process 
that God would have that will identify for us what we do and who we are and how we're to see the, the world around us, okay? So, Second Corinthians chapter 4, 5, and 6, uh, God says this. He starts with defining the difference between a Christ follower and someone that the Bible calls an unbeliever, someone who has not yet placed their life under God's definition and direction. And the Apostle Paul is speaking on God's behalf. He says this in verse 4 of chapter 4. He says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel <clears throat> that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay, so he starts off and he says, listen, the, the God of this age, the God of this age is Satan. The God of this age is Satan plus like our sin, plus a godless culture. It, it's kind of all that mixed together. But it's the God of this age has given us a logic that has blinded our minds to the things of God. Uh, we naturally are sinners. We're raised in a culture that does not celebrate following Christ. The schemes of the devil is another way that the Bible uh, uses that. But what happens is this, is as, a, as someone who has not yet followed Christ, there's a way that I look at the world and it makes sense to me. When I become a follower of Christ, when I step through that torn curtain and I step into the light and into life, that way of thinking changes I have a different logic, a different set of priorities, a different way that I would see the world. Before that, I am blinded by the things that are around me. So here's some uh, ways that that would look. This logic would sound stuff like this, like you only live once would make sense to me here. Uh, look out for number one would make sense to me here. Uh, get all you can get would make sense to me here. On the other side, once I've accepted Christ's forgiveness of sin and the Holy Spirit now lives in me, that stuff doesn't make sense to me anymore. I have a different logic because I'm no longer blinded to the things of God, and I start to see the world the way that God would see the world, and I start to interact with the world the way that God would interact with the world. So Paul just starts and he says, hey, just don't forget, like, the way that everybody else thinks is actually normal, and, and it's normal that they would think that way, and it's normal that they would act that way because they've never been taught anything different, and by the way, that was you right? That was you. you. You thought the same way. All have sinned. All fall short of God's glory. All of us are born that way. All the logic of the God of this age makes sense to us, right? And it's normal that they would think that way. And then he goes on and, and he says this, because we have been rescued by God, because we have moved from death to life, from darkness to light, we have shifted the way that we think. He says, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as servants of Je for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. Uh, Paul goes on, he says, this is the logic that you thought this way too. You were blinded, you were in darkness, but somebody told you about Christ. Somebody explained the logic of God to you. Somebody explained about sin. Somebody explained about forgiveness. Somebody explained what Jesus actually came to do, that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Somebody interacted with you about that. So now, as someone who is over here as a follower of Christ, what I do is I preach or I tell like Christ ultimately did for me. 
I, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Then he looks at his followers. He says, now you're the light of the world. You're like me. I am taking my light and I'm shining it into this darkness. I'm helping other people understand what I have understood. I'm helping them kind of overcome the logic that they've been born into, their blindness, to use the Bible's word. And I want to express to them what I've found, what makes sense to me now, once the spiritual lights came on and I was resurrected spiritually from the dead. So I'm not preaching myself. I'm not looking and saying, hey, I got a new opinion or I got a kick that I'm on or I found a way to be healthy, like spiritually healthy. I'm not preaching that. I'm preaching Jesus. Jesus rescued me. Jesus saved my soul. Jesus changed me. And I want you to know that. I want you to understand it. And I want you to get your head around it, right? I want to shine light into your darkness the way that light has been shown into mine. Now, this is important because for the, for the Christ follower, we would look and say that is actually the most critical issue facing humanity. We would believe this, that the rescuing of our souls is the most critical issue facing humanity. We would look and say, now that I'm over here, the most important thing is your soul and whether your soul's going to go to heaven or your soul's going to go to hell. More than my politics, more than my job, more than whatever kick I happen to be on at the moment, the most important thing facing humanity is the destiny of their soul. And I believe that and have responded to that and I understand that that's what matters the most to Jesus. Jesus didn't come to reform the Roman government. He didn't come to establish a great religion. He didn't come to make people happy and healthy for the little bit of time that they're on the planet. The most important thing to Jesus was that he came to provide a way for our souls to be rescued from sin and death, to use a Bible phrase. The Bible says our souls are trapped, our souls are entangled, they're dead spiritually, and they need to be resurrected. It's major overkill for Jesus to suffer and die and raise again for me to have a positive outlook on life. Really, really major overkill. Major overkill for Jesus to suffer, die, and be raised again so that I can go to church. But if you're talking about the rescuing of someone's life. If you're talking about the difference between heaven and hell, and you look at the urgency with which Christ approached that, now that that makes sense to me as his follower, that same urgency is going to be the predominant factor of my Life. In fact, I'm going to view it that way. Paul goes on, he says this, he says, therefore, we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Paul would say, this is our logic now. I know that outwardly it's weird to those who are blinded spiritually, it's weird what I'm doing. But inwardly, it has been life-changing for me. I know that on the outside, it's weird for me to say to you, I place my life under the authority and direction of an unseen God. I trusted the Word of God, the Bible, 
I trusted it as if they are the very words given by God. I know all that's weird on the outside, but on the inside, let me tell you, man, when I took that step of faith, it changed my life. It, it, it renewed, it removed the anxiety of my soul. I know to like a North American ear, especially the idea that I surrender my independence and somebody else runs my life instead of me being independent and me finding my own truth. I know that outwardly that's all weird, but inwardly that's, that's the most peaceful, restful, motivating thing I've ever had happen. I know that on the outside, like things like me giving my money to stuff. Like I give my money to the church and we start churches and send missionaries and I restrict my lifestyle because of it. I know on the outside that's weird. On the inside, that is the best thing I do. It's the most fulfilling part of my, my earthly existence. I know on the outside, me restricting my life, not sleeping with whoever I want, not doing whatever I want, but living in a moral code. And I know on the outside it's weird, but on the inside, I found the security and the fulfillment I've actually been longing for my whole life. Paul says, I, I know that this logic changes, but I'm telling you what happened to me is the most important thing, and I want it to happen to you. I look and say this, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. I know this seems like a lot, but to me, I don't feel like it's a lot at all because I actually believe that this part of my life is the very beginning and the smallest part of my life. It's a vapor, what the Bible says. It's here, it's gone. So I know, I know it seems like a lot to you on the outside, but on the inside, light momentary struggles are achieving for me an eternal reward a place in heaven, a, a deeper connection with God, and it, it outweighs everything that seems logical to you who are blinded spiritually. So what I do as a Christ follower now, my logic has shifted. What I do is I fix my eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I'm not looking and saying, I, I want my best life now. That's nonsense. I look and say, I want eternal reward. And if, I, if it costs me some money or costs me some freedom in your book, if it, if it costs me living by a different moral code, if it costs me being a follower of Jesus, I know that seems like a lot to you. That doesn't seem like anything to me because I'm focused on that. And by the way, I view you that way. Not just, not just we work together, we're friends, we're buddies, we play ball but I, I look at you eternally. I look at your soul, and I care about your soul. I care about your eternal destiny. That motivates me. And because of that, because we know that, since we know uh, what it is to fear the Lord, because of that, we try to persuade others. Because this logic has shifted in my mind, actually a high priority for me is to try to persuade you of who Christ is. To try, to try to help you understand what's available to you. To, to try to let you know that your soul is at stake. And what becomes a predominant feature in my life, a natural outcome of my life as a Christ follower, is I want to become a persuader 
someone that helps you to see what I have seen and helps you to engage it. In fact, this is such a big part of my identity now that I'm a follower of Jesus that I, I'm actually compelled to do it. Christ's love compels me. It, it becomes my instinct. It becomes my habit, my natural reaction. When I look at you, I can't stop myself from trying to help you know who Christ is. It compels me because we're convinced. I'm convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And that he who died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. I'm convinced that, that this is the way to live. That Jesus is not just a prophet. Christianity is not just a religion. Jesus is God. He offered his life by his own power. He raised it again from the dead. And he is the way, the truth, the life. Nobody can connect to God except through him. And I'm telling you, I'm convinced that I I, ha I live for him. If I live for him, I'm going to love what he loves, and who he loves the most is you. So I'm going to try to persuade you of that. I, I view this as a life and death scenario. I'm not trying to win you over to my camp. I'm not trying to get you to vote a certain way. I'm not even trying to get you involved in the activities that I'm involved with. I love you. I'm compelled to tell you that your very soul, your eternal existence is at stake. In fact, I, I believe this so deeply that, that I believe it, it's become a primary driver in my life, so much so that I view myself as a, an ambassador for Christ. I am an ambassador for Christ as though God were making his appeal through us. And we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I, I view this so completely and so passionately that I look and say this, that every relationship that God has connected to me, the reason God has connected that relationship to me is so that you can experience what it's like to have Jesus in your life. And when you interact with me, it, it's as if you're interacting with Christ himself. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to care about whatever Christ would care about in my relationship with you. And what Christ cares the most about is your soul. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. If Jesus was here, he would tell you about the kingdom of God. He would seek to persuade you. If Jesus was here, he would implore you on Christ's behalf. He would, he would want you to be reconciled to God. If Jesus was your teacher, your coach, your coworker, your neighbor, your friend, your buddy at the gym, this is what he would be concerned about, what he would be investing his life in. And he would look and say, even his suffering, he would say, is light and momentary. Because he would care to rescue you and to alter your eternal destiny. Now, God, God would look at all that and he would say, that's what you do. Like, that's normal. That, that's not radical to, to tell people about me that way. That's not like a kick that you get on. That's not what, you don't hire professionals for that. You don't pay the pastors and the missionaries and the evangelists to that kind of stuff. Uh, I would look at every single one of you, God would say, and say, that, that's what you do. Because that's what has been done for you. And, and you live this way, and you love what I love, and you're motivated the way that I'm motivated. And what motivated me the most deeply was the rescuing of humanity's souls so they could be engaged in the relationship they were created to be engaged in and be rescued literally from the, the fires of hell.
The Apostle Paul says it a little bit differently. Later on, he's talking to his, his, uh, his protege, Timothy. He says this way. He says, Timothy, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship. And then he uses this phrase. He says, do the work of an evangelist. So Paul looks at Timothy and he says, do the work of an evangelist. He doesn't say be an evangelist or have the gifting of an evangelist or fill a room up and talk to people or fill a stadium up and talk to people. He doesn't say that. He says, Timothy, do, do the systematic, intentional, purposeful work of an evangelist, right? Help people be reconciled to God. Implore them. Persuade them. Be an ambassador to them so that they can move from death to life, from darkness to light, just like you did, right? And the Bible would teach that that work of an evangelist is the work that becomes the responsibility of every individual Christ follower. It's just what we do. It's normal and it's natural and it is a natural byproduct of loving what God loves and loving who he loves and investing our life in the way that he would invest our life, okay? Right? So do the work of an evangelist. Now, I realize that when I say that, that we are called to do the work of an evangelist I, I watched you, like the room tensed up, even the internet tensed up, right? I can see it happen, right? And, and you're like, Jeff, could you talk about sex or, or money or politics or something else? Like, do we, do we have to do the, like the, the evangelist thing? I, I can't take it. And we tense up because we all know about or have been a part of bad evangelistic experiences where somebody talked us into doing something or somebody has tried to evangelize us. I've had people knock on my door and try to evangelize me. I've had people interrupt my meals and try to evangelize me. I've had people interrupt my movies on airplanes and try to evangelize me. And I always kind of mess with them. I twist their theology and make them doubt their belief in God. But you probably shouldn't do that. But because I swing it around. But, but like I, it, it, it drives me nuts. Like I hate it, right? And so when we think about being an evangelist, we think about a sales pitch. We think about like, you know, you can either, you can either accept Jesus or buy my knives, either one, right? So it's that kind of a thing. We think about people with signs or bumper stickers. And so we all tense up a little bit because this has been done in such a negative way. In fact, that is what God wants. What you should do this afternoon is you should go to your neighbor's house, knock on their door with a t-shirt on that says turn or burn. And then if you could have your children with every political sign in the front yard, that's a very effective way to share the love of Jesus with people, okay? That is not what I'm talking about. And that is not what God is talking about, okay? So I want to talk about this for a few minutes. What does it mean to do the work of an evangelist? And how does this play out in real time? But let's start with this foundation, okay? Ready? Everybody grab this. Let's start with the foundation of this. Doing the work of an evangelist is not an option for a Christian. The Scripture is very clear multiple times, explicitly and through the life and example of Jesus and the apostles, that this is what we do. So it's not a take it or leave it question, it's a how to take it question, okay? So we got to start with that foundation because some of us would look and say, I don't like that part, so I don't do that part, or I, I give money so other people will do that part. That is not at all what the scripture has in mind and what God teaches is natural for his people. So doing the work is not a question that's up for grabs, how to do that work 
is something that I think we should talk about for a few minutes, okay? So I was, I was thinking this through, and I started thinking about kind of how you guys might hear this and kind of how we're at different levels spiritually, and, and where would you kind of start with this conversation, okay? So let, let me kind of start this. I kind of leveled it out. Here's the first place I thought, some of us are new to following Jesus, all right? We're real new to following Jesus. So some of you are like, Jeff, I accepted Jesus like last week, <laughs> right? Like I've made it to church two weeks in a row, and I feel like I'm radical. And now you want me to do what? Okay? So I want you to take a deep breath and relax a little bit. If you are new to following Jesus, let's call it the last six or 12 months. You're kind of new to following Jesus. You're kind of getting your feet under you a little bit. How do you embrace this uh, directive to do the work of an evangelist? I would really encourage you to lean into the Apostle Peter's teaching when he, when he says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He says, but in, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. You've done that. Right? So if you, if you have accepted Christ's forgiveness of your sin, you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, th then you're saved and you have revered Christ as Lord. Okay, so we did that. Revere Christ as Lord. And then he says this, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. If you are new in your relationship with God and you're trying to get your head around this part of the Bible, all I would say is this, all you have to do to do the work of an evangelist is answer the question of why you decided to follow Jesus. That's it, right? So when your friends or family are like, you did what? Yeah, I'm a Christian now. Why? Just answer that question. You, you've gone to church two, three weeks in a row? Yeah. Why? I mean, you know, it, it's usually on Saturday nights so we go out to the boot scoot saloon. And now you're going to, why? You go, you go and you watch this on live stream? Yeah, why? See, what, what's going on? You used to be Captain F-bomb. Why aren't you Captain F-bomb anymore? What, what's going on with you, right? You're moving out? Yeah. Why? Did you guys break up? Why are you doing that? Well, the, they taught us in the Bible about, why would you do that? That's it, Okay. And maybe pre-think that question a little bit, but that's all you got to do. And you answer that question, these two words are really important, with gentleness and respect. There's no agenda. I'm not even trying to get you to, to do what I did. Remember, I'm not preaching myself, I'm preaching Christ. I'm not trying to get you to vote a certain way, I'm not trying to get you to behave a certain way, nothing. I'm just, at the beginning, I'm just answering the question of why why I decided to do that? What was it that was said that finally clicked for me? Why did I feel like I had this need in my life? What is it that, that finally lit up in my mind that made God make sense to me? That's it. And if you could think through a little bit, uh, uh, an answer of why you did that, then when somebody asks you, you don't even have to go talk to anybody yet. When somebody asks you, Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you. That's it. You're doing the work of an evangelist, okay? Now, some of us are new to it, and we just need to start there. Here's another category that I think maybe hits a bunch of us. 
Some of us have fear and anxiety. That's a bunch of us. I watch you tense up when I say these things, right? And we have fear and anxiety for a bunch of different reasons. Some of us, it's a personality thing. You know, we're introverts, and we're like, Jeff, I don't even talk to my wife, man. <laughs> you want me to talk to me? Right? So I got you. Some of us have anxiety. We, we, we see it play out in such a negative sense publicly, or we have some kind of baggage with somebody sharing their faith with us, or some other faith trying to evangelize us to their way of thinking. I got it. So if you have fear and anxiety, but you want to respond to this directive in Scripture because it's there, it's not an option, where can you start, okay? So I'd be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you, and then I would do this. I would start with prayer. I would start with prayer. I wouldn't talk to anybody but God. And I would just start praying to God and saying, God, would you change me? Maybe it's boldness. Maybe it's healing from some negative experience. Uh, maybe it's an awareness, whatever it is. God, would you change me and, and help me? There's this part of the Bible that I know you want me to do. It scares me or I'm anxious about doing it. Whatever the reason for that is, God, would you start to kind of bring that out of my heart and put into my heart and my mind who you would want me to be? So start with prayer, Okay. I would move them from prayer, and I would add to prayer this idea that you look to the harvest. This is a Bible phrase. This is actually Jesus. At one point in the Bible, he's out with his disciples. He's in all the towns and villages, and he's preaching the good news of the kingdom. He's healing every disease and sickness, and he looks on the crowds that are around him, and the Bible says he has compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And then he looks at his disciples, his followers, and he says, listen, Look into the harvest field, it is ripe, and pray that the Lord of the harvest sends workers into the harvest field. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, see those people? I want you to see them the way that I see them. I see them as souls that are ripe to move from death to life, from darkness to light. And I want you to see people the way that I see them. Here, here's the way that God sees humanity, right? God looks at you individually, and the Bible tells us several things about how he sees you. One is that he knows you, and he intended for you to be here. That's why every human being, every life that's conceived has a purpose and a reason for being on the planet. God knit you together in your mother's womb. He created you the way that he created you, and he did it on purpose, and he created you in advance to do the good works that he prepared for you to do. So God looks at you and says, you have a reason, you have a purpose, there's a reason you exist, you just haven't found it yet, maybe. So God looks at you that way. The Bible says that God looks at you individually, he cares for your needs, he knows your needs and your concerns. He knows the number of hairs on your head, the Bible says. He knows the details of your life, and he cares about those details of your life. That's why whatever our needs are, we can make those requests known to God, and it matters to him. You're not just some, you're not like one of six billion you're you, custom designed by God, cared for it in love. And then the Bible says this, God also looks at you and he looks at your soul and he knows that you as an individual are going to go to heaven or you're going to go to hell. And he cares about that. So much so that he gave his only son to die for you because he doesn't want you to go to hell. He wishes that none would perish, but all would come to repentance and follow him. So when God looks at human beings, he sees souls 
And he says, I want you guys to look at human beings that way. Look at the harvest. Every human being has a soul. There is no reincarnation. There, that we are not a computer that just ceases to work. We have an eternal destiny. The front part of our life is the shortest part of our life. And when it goes, I will be with the Lord forever in heaven if I receive the forgiveness of my sin through Jesus Christ, or I will be forever separated from God in hell. God would say, I want you to see every human being that way. That person you work with isn't the person you work with. They're a person who's going to go to heaven or hell. That waitress is going to go to heaven or hell. That your, your friend, your family member that you're not getting along with, they're going to go to heaven or hell. Your kids are going to go to heaven or hell. And you are in their life to affect their eternal destiny. See the harvest. Okay. And this is what happens. When you start to see people as people who are going to go to heaven or going to go to hell, what's going to happen is you're going to have a compassion for them. You're never going to resent them. You're never going to look at them and say, well, they all need to fry, bunch of... No. Because you remember that you were blinded. There was a time that everything they do made sense to you. But the light shone into your darkness, right? So you see the heart. You start praying, God changed me. And then, and then you see the harvest. I start seeing people the way that Jesus sees them. And then what I'd encourage you to do is narrow that. So God, I see humanity this way, and then I see these individual people this way. And here at Grace, we use this phrase a lot. We say, pray for your three. And start to ask God, God, give me three people in my life. They're probably not strangers, but maybe they are. But three people in my life that I love and that I know, and I want to pray for them. And what we would encourage you to do is this. Pray for those three people by name every day that God would draw them to himself. And in our challenge, we're saying do that for five weeks. Pray for those people every day by name for five weeks. And here's the good news. It's not your job to get them to accept Christ. That's not your job. God does all that. He draws people. The Bible says he prepares the soil of the heart, right? He's the one that's getting them ready. My job is to simply give an answer for the reason of the hope that's within me when I'm asked. That's it. So I'm praying that God will do his work. I'm seeing people the way that he sees them. And when I see people with eternal destinies of heaven and hell, I'll have compassion on them. And I'm praying that God changes me. And then the fourth thing we said was this, wait for a no-brainer moment. This is what's going to happen. This is fascinating the way this works. When I ask God to change me, and I start to see people the way that God sees them, and I'm praying specifically for these three people that God will open up their heart and their mind in a new way, what happens is this. God loves that prayer, and he answers those prayers. And somewhere in the course of your relationship with them, you will have a no-brainer moment. You will not force the door open. You will not refuse to leave until somebody buys the magazine subscription from you. You will not have to force them to buy the extra knife they didn't really want to. None of that is what evangelism is. What evangelism is, is God will work in their heart. He will create a no-brainer moment, and then he will attach them to his ambassador as if he himself were standing there. And a no-brainer moment will sound like this. So why, why do you go to church all the time? Just answering the question. So you, you, all right, dude, you started reading your Bible at work? Why, why don't, why don't you, why'd you leave that party early? It was just getting good. 
you seem different. Why are you, you told me you're praying for me. What, what are you, why are you praying for me? It's a no-brainer moment where you just give an answer for the reason the hope is within you. Your job is not to create it. Your job is to answer the question when asked. And by the way, when they stop asking the question, your job is to be quiet. Just shift the conversations right to the Browns and then they'll pray with you, <laughs> right? So, right? so it's, it, we, we, you back off right away. It, you, I, you don't have to force anything. You don't have to make anybody uncomfortable. You're just loving people, praying for them. And when God creates a moment, enter the moment. When he closes the moment, back off of it. He's not done working with them yet, okay? That's it. So you, you, you're not hitting a quota. That's nonsense, you're not forcing a relationship. That's nonsense. You're just praying, God, give me boldness when it's my time. Your, your relationship with God is absolutely personal and it is in no way private. So I don't hide my relationship with God. I don't force it on you. But when asked, I give the answer. I'm praying for my three and I'm waiting for a no-brainer moment, okay? So some of us are new at it. Some of us have fear and anxiety. Another category I thought of was this. Some of us lack experience. So some of us would look and say, I'm, I'm, I'm in on this. Like, I'm totally in on it. I have no idea what to do. I've never done that. And if you have never led someone to Christ, you are the normal Christian, by the way, okay? So you're, you're, you might look and say, can you help get me ready a little bit? And I would say, yes, we can. So we're going to do a couple things through our challenge. One is this. We're going to have some workshops. We're going to call them salt and light workshops. That'll make more sense after we talk next weekend. And you're going to hear some of those things laid out, opportunities for you to go and be a part of it. And so these are normal people. These are not the pastors telling you our, our, our uh, triumph stories of leading people to Christ. These are normal folks that work in the normal marketplace. And they're going to talk to you about how they work to be salt and light. And then we're going to kind of learn how to do that together and pray together and, and, and kind of team up to do that, okay? So keep your eye out for that. If you lack experience and you want it, we'll help get you ready in these workshops. The other thing I encourage you to do is to team up. So if you are in the same neighborhood, if you're on the same team, you go to the same school, you work at the same place, get together with another follower of Jesus and you guys pray together and pray for each other's three. You don't need to meet every day. You can do it over email or social media, but just let each other know and get a team and get to praying together. And then we're going to team up as a church. In fact, this Tuesday night here at, at the Gent Road building, we're going to have a prayer meeting. If you've never been in an old-fashioned prayer meeting, it's fun. You're going to have fun at it. And we're going to get together, and we're going to pray together. And we're going to pray for each other, and we're going to pray for each other's three, and we're going to pray for no-brainer moments. And you just team up. And it's fun and it's encouraging to look and say, oh, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one with these fears. I'm not the only one with these anxieties. I'm not the only one that lacks experience. I'm not the only one passionate about people not going to hell. And so God gives the church to the church in those ways that we encourage each other and we help each other and we team up in those ways, okay? So some of us are new. Some of us have fear and anxiety. Some of us lack experience. And then here's the last one. And I'm just, be honest with you. Here it is. Some of us just have hard hearts, now, you get, I love you, and I think you know that, but we just got to talk about this for a minute. Because some of us know these directives from scriptures very well, and we don't care, and we've chosen to ignore. Jesus says something fascinating in the book of Matthew, chapter 15. 
He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. There's people who say I'm a Christian, say I'm God, and, and go to church and can quote the Bible and sing the songs. But when I look past their behavior into their heart, I don't see a heart that loves who I love. And guys, I would say to you, careful. Some of you guys, you know the Bible so well, the minute I said 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 5, and 6, you're like, it's evangelism talk. He's back at ambassadors again. It must be on his 18-month cycle to preach it. Some of you, the minute I said evangelism, all of your justifications for never being an evangelist kick in. I don't have time. You know, the weather's bad. The kids are busy. Careful. God would look at his people and say, if you have moved from death to life, from darkness to light, one of the hallmarks of that is that you love what I love, you prioritize what I prioritize, and I have no higher priority than seeking to save that which is lost. And when you don't, when you don't care, when you won't take the time to know, when you resent the lost, you kind of look forward to them getting God's justice in your mind. Careful. God says, I give grace to the humble. If you're trying, you're just no good at it, but you're trying to understand it, God's like, I'm with you all day long. No problem. I give grace to you. But I oppose the proud. When you just take one of the huge emphasis of Scripture and refuse to have it be a part of your life, then you've positioned yourself in opposition to God. And just be careful. Be careful. See? In the 1930s, there was a, a group of guys that probably heard some conversation like this. And they wanted to see God do something in their community. Some businessmen, a guy was a farmer, a guy was in a factory, just a group of guys. And so they, they knew each other, maybe from church or maybe from the community somehow. And they said, we, do, we, want to, we want to see people reconciled to God. We want to try to persuade people. We want to be ambassadors, but we don't know what to do. So they got together and they started praying and they just started praying and thinking and talking and asking God to give them ideas. And so they got this idea. It's an old-fashioned idea, but they were like, you know what we could do? We could get some money together and we could bring in an evangelist. It's kind of an old-fashioned thing that people used to do. And we'll set up a tent. We'll have like a revival and evangelistic meeting. So they reached out to this guy named Mordecai Ham. And Mordecai Ham was a very famous evangelist of his time. He was very well known. Thousands and thousands of people had come to know Christ under his preaching. So they reached out to him and said, what's it, what's it going to take to get you to come to town? And they figured it out. And they had to figure out a budget to rent the tent and get the chairs and put up the lights. And so these guys, this, this group of businessmen and farmers and workers, they started putting their own money in. And they, they put their own money in, and then other people kind of got on board, and they got a little bit of a thing going. And they thought, this is our plan. We're going to bring the evangelists to town, and then people will invite their friends for the evangelists being in town, and then maybe God will, will win some to himself, and people will be reconciled to God. 
they kept praying and they got the plans in place. And the one guy who was a supervisor at a farm, actually, he started praying about who he could invite. And he started to invite a couple of these teenage boys and ask them if they wanted to go hear the, the preacher. Well, they, they ignored him, kind of blew him off, made fun of him a little bit, but he was kind of okay with it. So he put his own money into the pot, and then he went, he'd go to these revival meetings every night, and, and he was ushering, and so helping people find seats, and he'd listen to the preaching, maybe pray with some people if they accepted Jesus, something like that, but just kind of pitching in, being a volunteer, and then he would go back to work every morning, and he'd kind of re-invite these teenagers, and they ignored him. So he was there for a week or two, and, and Mordecai was just preaching preaching his heart out, and, and God was really working. Mordecai Ham was a phenomenal speaker, and people related to him. He was kind of a cutting-edge guy for his time, and so young people and all these kind of stuff were coming to know Christ, and a little bit of a revival was happening. The guy that supervised at the farm asked his teenage kids that worked for him again if they wanted to go, and they finally said yes. And so one Friday night, they, they, the two of them went to these revival services, and uh, they showed up. He was ushering there, and he looked back and saw that they were getting ready to leave because they couldn't find seats. And so he kind of ran out and got them and said, I'll find you seats. And he went to a couple people that he knew and asked them to give their seats up, and they did. And the two boys got their seats. And Mordecai was just kind of on fire that night preaching. The Spirit of God was moving. He gave an invitation to, to come forward, kind of the old-fashioned way, come forward and repent of your sins. And so a bunch of people did, hundreds of people did that night. And sure enough, those two boys came forward that night and they accepted Christ. One of those boys' name was Billy Graham. And Billy Graham was used by God as an evangelist in, in incredible ways. They estimate that Billy Graham spoke to 100 million people in person over his lifetime. Tens of thousands of people accepted Christ, probably hundreds of thousands, I would say. They say that over radio and television, and then later on the internet, Billy Graham connected with over a billion people and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. North America, all over the world, God used him in these absolutely incredible ways. And not only did Billy Graham reach hundreds of thousands, millions of people with the good news of the gospel, but he actually changed the conversation in Christendom, where Christendom was so engrossed in theology and doctrine that it lost sight of its primary purpose of being a light to the world. And so from the 1940s to today, Billy Graham's ministry affected Christendom so uh, dramatically that evangelism became kind of the leading edge of it. Missions became the leading edge of it. You could argue that tens of millions of people have been affected and received the gospel of Jesus Christ directly from Billy Graham or through the effect of his life and ministry on the world. The hero of that story is the usher. Just some guy, just some guy that didn't want people to go to hell. Just some guy that cared about the people he worked with. Just some guy that would, it's a dairy farm, so 12-hour days, and then would go volunteer at night. Just some guy that threw some money in the pot to try to make something happen.
just a guy. that looked at God and said, this is what we do. This is what I do. When the Bible says, do the work of an evangelist, it's talking to me. A guy that probably never even spoke in public. A guy that couldn't write a million dollar check. A guy that was probably terrified to be mocked again by teenagers that worked for him. But on purpose, systematically, he engaged the Scripture's command to do the work of an evangelist. See? Odds are you're never going to stand on a stage under lights. Odds are you're never going to fill a stadium. Some of you might, I don't know. Odds are you're not going to go to some far-off mission field somewhere. Some of you know, might. I don't know. But odds are you won't. But you're that guy. You're that guy, and God has the people in your life that he has in your life because you're that guy. You're that guy that, that crossed over. You're that guy that because you're a follower of Jesus can enter boldly into the throne room of God. You're that guy that cares about people's souls. See? And when Billy Graham got to heaven, we might all be shocked that God found that guy's investment in the kingdom as powerful and meaningful as Billy Graham's. See. We have these uh, bracelets for you on your chairs. On the one side, it's, it's just our logo. On the, other, on the inside, it says, pray for your three. And this is what we want to invite us all to do. Let's just start praying. Don't worry about a sales pitch. That never was God's intention. We all hate that for a reason. But being that guy, see. So if you want, you can throw this on. And what I'm going to invite you to do here in a couple minutes is just to ask God to give you your three names. Who do you want me to pray for? They're probably not strangers. They might be. They're probably people that you love. So God, who do you want me to pray for? And then our little challenge, if you want to wear this, is for the next five weeks while we're in the middle of all this, we're going to pray for them every day by name. So you got your bracelet. You got your piece of the curtain that was torn, right? You got these little reminders. And if, if you want to use them, great. If you don't need them, that's obviously fine too. That's not the point. The point is let's throw some energy at this. And I'm telling you guys, you're going to be shocked when you look at God and say, I'll be the guy. You're going to be shocked how God loves that prayer, how he answers it. 
So that's what we'll, we'll do. And in a moment, the band will come out and, and they'll give us a little bit of space and just begin asking God, who's my three? Put them on my mind. Put them on my heart and I'll pray for them, okay? If you're here this weekend or you're watching this weekend and you have not yet asked Christ to forgive you of your sin and, and you've heard it all, right? It's, it's been a while and it's all been explained, but you haven't had that I do moment where you just say, God, I, I'm actually in. Will you forgive me of my sin? I believe that Jesus is Lord. I confess it with my mouth. I believe in my heart that he raised again from the dead. It's not just a fable, it's a fact. And I, the blindness has started to be lifted and the logic of placing my life under his authority and direction somehow makes sense to me. If you've never done that and you want to do that today, I encourage you to do it. And you just pray. Pray and ask God to forgive you that you're giving your life to him. Don't worry about the right words. God doesn't care what you say. He cares what you mean. So from your heart to God's heart, right, just pray, right? And then you start embracing this stuff, and all you got to do is tell your story. That's it. Don't worry about the rest of it, okay? But if you've never done that, I encourage you to do that today. All right, I'm going to pray for us. If you're a Christ follower, I encourage you to pray and start asking for your three. If it's time for you to step out in faith and make that leap, I encourage you to do that. And then uh, we'll move forward. It's what we do. Okay. Jesus, we love you. Thanks for loving us. Thank you that you did this for us. God, you shined into the darkness, our darkness. You stepped into our spiritual death and you made a way for us to be resurrected personally. So God, help us to engage that and then be changed by it. Give us your eyes. Give us your heart. Give us your passion, your boldness. That's why we're here. It's what we do. You didn't give the church to the church. You gave the church to the world that's blinded. And we don't resent them. We don't hide from them. We love them. So Jesus, spark all of that in us. Holy Spirit, in these still moments, if you'd press deep into the nuances of our heart, if we need to repent of sin, lead us to that. If we need to awaken to the harvest, lead us to that. Give us our three. Just guide us every step of the way. Help us in that. Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. This is in your name we pray. Amen.